Welcome to the Patrick Real Estate Show, where we explore the fascinating world of real estate investing with your host, Patrick Switek. Patrick is a dynamic young entrepreneur and an accomplished real estate investor who's passionate about helping others achieve financial freedom. Each week, we sit down with some of the most inspiring individuals in the real estate industry and delve into their personal journeys, lessons learned, and secrets to their success. Let's dive into this week's episode. Steve, welcome to the show, man. I'm actually super excited for this episode. Steve is the founder of Casago. He's a veteran when it comes to short-term rental industry. And he also is the previous founder of Streamline, which is one of the OG PMS systems in the short-term rental space. So to say the least... Steve is the man when it comes to all things short-term rental, hospitality, and he's super passionate about bringing this to the masses. And I'm just so excited to get you on board and just talk shop about how you really scaled to 4,000 units across the U.S., across Mexico. And am I forgetting anything, Steve? I think that's a pretty good start. Okay. Yeah. So welcome to the show, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Personally, Steve and I met a at a conference in Nashville. And I was, to say the least, I was very impressed with everything he's accomplished. But more so, I was really impressed with his business acumen. The fact that he understands culture, understands business, understands that short-term rentals, hospitality, this is building a hospitality business when you get into the short-term rental space. And he talks a lot about that to merit to his success in the space. So we'll get into all of that. But Steve, do you want to maybe give a little bit of background on how you came across short-term rentals? Or were you always successful and always had 4,000 units? I'm assuming not. <laughs> no, obviously not. No, You didn't yeah, get that uh, passed down to you. You're not a trust fund kid. It's all from the ground up, baby. Mm -hmm. All from the ground. But yeah, we. Uh, I was 28 years old. I had been an Army Ranger and first was in First Ranger Battalion and served there. Did some college. Just uh, got my bachelor's degree at New Mexico State University, and went down to Mexico for the summer. Thing I was going to take a break. Got down there, was drinking in a bar, and a gentleman, <laughs> massive man, was like, "Hey, talking about how he couldn't crawl up a roof." I've done some sheet metal in high school, so jumped up and offered help him out and got involved. And the next day he came back, asked for some more help. And I did and wouldn't take any money. And the reason he couldn't crawl up on the roof was he was sick and he ended up having cancer. He passed away. About six months later, I get a call from his wife. I'd, I'd met her through this whole experience. And she said, Hey, Bruce thought you'd be pretty good at this. I'm like, oh, Cindy, I'm really not a maintenance guy. And she's no dummy. She's like, he thinks you'd be good at being a property manager. And I was like, I know nothing about it. And she's come on over and look. So she had 30 short-term rentals all along the beach. And I sat down and it was all paper-driven. There was no software. It was all, somebody would call you on a phone. You'd write it down on a piece of paper. They would send a money order to Mexico to hold it. And when they showed up, they would drive all this cash across the border, just hand it to you all in just $100 bills for the most part. And then they'd, you'd give them a key, they'd go check in and they'd come back, they'd give you the key back and they'd drive home. And we had these little pamphlets they would take, here's some pamphlets for next year, think about what you want to do. 
And uh, off. What of- year was this, by the way, Steve? I figured that it was funny that since we said how what year was that you started it was like it must have lasted for about twenty seconds. How does it long? <laughs> I'm like, oh wow! Like, I'll just sit here and wait for it. Then it went dead. <laughs> You're like it's like the Zootopia. Have you watched that? No. Oh, the the slots. Slots. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the slots at the DMV. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I did see that. Yeah. That's um. So yeah. So, what, so you just asked. Let uh, me go into it. Yeah. Uh, what year was this, Steve? So I moved down there in May of 2000, and I took over Cindy's Beach Home Rentals in January 1st of 2001 is when it all got started. Yeah, my very first day, I came in on January 1st, and Cindy sat down with a piece of paper and said, okay, here's the different homes. Each one has a different commission. Uh, Each one gets paid on a different day. Each one has different instructions. And here's the contact address of how you pay every single one of these homeowners. I'll see you later. I'll come back after lunch and train you some more. Fantastic. So she, she leaves for lunch and I'm sitting there and I sit down in a chair and all the boat, it was missing all the bolts. I sit down, I fall through the chair. I hit my head. I'm bleeding because the chair went back and I got all this blood running everywhere. And I stand up and the lights are out. Like, Oh my God, did I, am I going blind? (laughs) <laughs> and the electricity had been cut at the exact same moment because she hadn't paid any electrical bills. I stand up and I walk to the door and I watch a rider truck driving out of town. That's the last time I ever saw Cindy. <laughs> she dipped. <laughs> That's so funny. So she just dipped. She just left. And it's funny because you mentioned how the businesses ran. And it seems like some short-term rental operators run their business like that to this day where they're just all over the place. They don't use pricing automation. They don't use different tools that you can use to automate your business. So it's relatable in that fact where you're just left with this mess of not even a business, just an operation that's not complete. So what did you do from here? Do you have an MBA to be able to turn this around or did you just figure it out? No, I mean, I had, I'd had a small DJ business in college, but I'd never had any real business before. I went back to my days of being in the military and being an army ranger. In Ranger Battalion, we talk a lot about clockwork warfare, where everything's a system. There's a process. There's ways to enter a building. There's ways to exit a building. There's ways to do, to take an objective or create an ambush, whatever these things look like. There's a very specific process to it. And then you laid principles on top of that. I just started putting in processes and running a small team. And we made sure that everybody had very clear goals, very clear missions, job descriptions. There was a system put in place and that was the beginning of it. From there, it was just a matter of, of making a very clear circle, which is your business cycle and trying to stay as close to that business cycle as you can. And any variance in that business cycle is where um, friction starts to happen and you start to upset homeowners. You start to upset your guests. If you own the property, you start to lose your ROI on it, your recidivism of your guests coming back. These are the things that will end up costing you money and costing you clients. So the very first thing was just getting a process in place. Got it. And so what was one of the first processes you started implementing to really bring this to more sustainable business model? The very first true process that made a change was getting my books in order. Wow. You know, my 
my business partner, Ryan Dame, he says that accounting is the language of business. And while we're in the business of hospitality, make no mistake, this is a business. And we're, this is actually a hybrid between hospitality, it's a real estate play as we invest into our properties. It is a service play as we service others. It's a tech play in some instances, but it's all a business. And getting close to my numbers, understanding where I was making money, and quite honestly, where I was losing money, understanding my taxes, understanding the implications of all that put together was the very first thing that I saw that moved the needle dramatically. Because I remember going to my first couple of months, I had no accounting, had no idea what I was doing. People were bringing me literally hands full of cash. And I was writing it down and shoving it into a safe. I had, I had a couple hundred thousand dollars in a small Mexican village in a small little house with a safe full of, you know, hundreds of thousands, always over a hundred thousand dollars. I had no idea what to do with it. And I remember taking, I wasn't paying myself anything. And so I took 20 bucks to eat. I was like, that's it. I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm taking money. I don't, I didn't know whether that was my money or their money. I didn't know what I had to pay, what I didn't have to pay. It was a disaster. And it was terrifying. Quite honestly, it was terrifying. And one of the things I always say, and you'll hear me say this often is clarity is kindness. Clarity about your numbers is kindness to yourself. The amount of anxiety that we all put upon ourselves to, because we don't know our numbers and we don't know what our true ROI is or what our cap rates are, if we're commingling funds, the anxiety that you lay in bed and wonder how, you're, how well you're doing or not doing is really being unkind to yourself. Get your accounting straight, get your books straight, get your trust account straight. That's the very first thing, you, the system that you can put in place that will change your life and your emotional state wow. and your ability to make great decisions and be brave. There was times when I did have my accounting straight that I had opportunities, but I was afraid to make them because if I went out and risked it and it wasn't my money because I didn't know how much I had, I missed out on opportunities. So it's making great decisions are easy when you have the facts and accounting is facts. It's not an art. It's a science. Wow. That's, that's huge. So if there's any business out there that doesn't have their accounting straight, then you're not, you're doing yourself a disservice. There's nothing in the world, no amount of clients, no amount of anything that's going to be able to really help you grow like accounting where you understand your numbers, you understand the ROI, you understand everything that you're, everything that you're generating. So this is what I was, what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. In the short-term world, how do you know, how do you know which homes to buy? If you don't know your numbers, how do you know which clients, if you're doing management for others, how do you know which clients to take? Some clients will cost you money. If you take a that's 40 miles away from you, that you have the service, that's a small home that's not producing ROI, that's not renting very well, it doesn't give you understanding your numbers is the clarity that you're going to have in order to operate at a high level. Got it. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. So let's say that you have your numbers straight. What's next for Steve at this point? I would tell you that after that is team building, right? And making sure that you're investing into your people, being an invested leader into the people you work with is job number one. At the end of the day, we talk a lot about being owner-centric, about guest care, making sure we're being very hospitable to our guests, but your team can't be what they don't see, right? And so they can't be hospitable if they can't see hospitality. 
And so we teach hospitality by how we treat each other. And at the end, and if you look at what hospitality means, it's really just another word for thoughtfulness, right? Am I being thoughtful? Am I caring for them? Am I thinking about their needs? Am I thinking about what's important to them? Am I anticipating their what they want and need, their safety? These are the things that hospitality are. So as we're being thoughtful to one each to each other within the business, as we're holding each other to the standards, as we're taking care of what we do as leaders, these into building a team will quite honestly honor your values. And because you're showing them your and how you act every day. So getting that team right, your internal team is gonna be number two. You've got to bring that team in. I still have most of my original team from 20 years ago, 23 wow. years ago now. Yeah, so wow. it's, I still have higher, I still have some of the original housekeepers that came with Cindy's Beach Terminals. Uh, my original maintenance man stayed with me until he passed away. His son works for me. And I have three generations of, of the same family that work for me now. Why is that? Because not because we pay more, that's a commodity, not because we think we're cool or this is a great brand. It's because of an investment into the personal lives of your team and having their back when things have gone wrong and valuing them as human beings. It's something that the civilian world is missing and people want to be part of something bigger. Sometimes it's the re reason why religion does well. Somebody wants to be part of something bigger, organizations, those sort of things. Building your own internal culture by caring for your people is the only way to scale a service organization. Wow, that's powerful. Because the people are the pe the ones that are running it. So right. they're the ones that are going to be on the front end. They're the ones that are, if they don't feel good about themselves, they don't feel like they're doing something that's purposeful. They're not going to reflect that in their day-to-day -day operations, what I'm hearing. And so people, so let's say you have your accounting books in order. Accounting books alone won't get you to the next level. The people will, right? And so with retention, what are some key aspects that help with keeping the right people and just retention overall of happiness? What are the key things you guys implement to allow you guys to keep three generations of workers? Yeah. First thing is selection, picking the right people, making sure that they are people who have the same values as you do, building a great culture. And there's a very simple way to build a great culture. There's a roadmap to it. It's practical, but being clear, first of all, about what your values are, right? If you're not clear about what your personal values are as the leader of your organization, whether it's just you and one other person or it's you and 5,000 other people, you're the soul of the organization as the owner or the CEO or the president, you have to lead that. And so if you don't know what you, if you don't know what your own values are, if you can't articulate them well, then you're going to be unclear when you go to talk to the organization. The second piece is now that you know what your your value, your personal values are, getting your company values in alignment. So they will overlap. They won't be perfectly centrifugal. You may have a value in your own personal life of, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to be in great shape, right? Now, being in great shape as a value, a personal value doesn't translate to business, right? Because there's not a fitness for that, but you can't be in conflict. You can't say that on one side, hey, my personal values are, I want to really care for people. And then on your business values, say, we're just going to run people over and we're here to turn and burn, right? 
and the opposite is true also. So making sure your business and personal values have integrity to each other is important as in they, they don't conflict with each other. You'll never be able to operate that business. Communicating those values to your team on a daily basis. A lot of people say, oh, here's our values. And they, you know, they give you a piece of paper when you first start up with a business and there's a pretty little poster and nobody talks about them. Nobody lives them. Nobody's practicing them. Nobody's preaching them. Nobody's, you're permitting things outside of those values. Those aren't your values. Your values are not a poster. Your values are the things that you practice every single day when your team comes in and you're clear about your intention. You're intentionally talking about what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. When you're in there and you're promoting it, you're talking about it every single day. You're talking about the context of it every single day. You're talking about how you're promoting people because they're living the values. And you're also coaching them when they are doing something that doesn't honor your values. It has to be constant. This is how you intentionally start to set up your values to build into a culture. And then what are you permitting? Look, some ways are often people who are rock stars, they can often be very self-centered. They are often driven by insecurity. You may have somebody who's just murdering it for you, just knocking out of the ballpark. And you're like, wow, yeah, but they're doing 50% better than anybody else. Yeah, but everybody else's morale is drugged down by 20%. And everybody else is underperforming because it's a caustic environment, right? So if you say that you value your people and you allow the one rock star to beat up everybody else or that homeowner or that vendor because they do a good job, you're just, you're not, you don't have, you don't have integrity within your practice to what you're saying. And so once you have that down, it allows your team to feel safe because your team knows exactly what they're getting. I'm coming into work. I know what to expect. My boss is going to say this. He's going to do this. And when I'm in, in alignment with him, he's going to back me up. He's going to defend me. And it's personally what I'm in alignment with in my personal values. When you have that safety and alignment with your team, it will bring in the people who, uh, who are with you, who believe the same as you do, but it also acts as an immune system. Those who have very different values, if you have a, a culture of which you're caring for people and loving on people, and you and it's very people centered, and you have somebody who's very money centered. It will drive them out. So essentially, what it comes down to, Patrick, the way you retain people is specifically to how safe they feel, and the only way you can make sure that they feel safe in their job is that the expectations of what you say and what you do, and having their back when things go wrong, and taking care of them when they're in need is the component of safety and trust that drives retention. Wow. So every day when somebody comes in, they feel like they, their job might be at stake, right? Like where they can lose their job or something might happen if they do the wrong decision or something of that nature, right? But when they know that these are the values, this is what we stand for, as, well, as long as you make a decision within those values set, then nobody can get mad at you because that's how things run. Is that more or less what you're saying? I'm saying that when people understand what to expect and that people are invested into them as human beings, they stay at their job. And there's ways to build up those good decisions through your organization. But quite honestly, being kind and forgiving when they make mistakes, as long as you can see them moving forward, it's just part of it. This is a soft science. 
you've got people on multiple sides, right? You, so you, as you're operating the business, all the people that you're working with, your housekeeping, if you have somebody in reservations, if you have a GM, if you have maintenance, then you also have the guests who have their own opinions. And often within the guests, there's a whole dynamic within the guests, whether if there's one guest or 30 guests, that's a whole different dynamic. And then if you're managing for others, short-term rentals, you have to think about that whole soft science of how those homeowners are going to feel. So there's going to be mistakes made every single day, but what you have to do is you have to scale good decisions because you have people who are making decisions in your name every single day in the absence of your leadership, in the absence of your presence. So scaling good decisions through communicating your values every single day and then putting principles in place, which are just the rules of how you make decisions based on your values for them to live by and constantly repeating those, constantly communicating those, investing in those over time. It takes years to do this. But once you have a team that understands the values, they're aligned with those values, you put principles in place so they can make good decisions around the values. Over time, you start to end up with a organization who has a cultural norm. And another word for a cultural mm -hmm. norm is just a culture, right? And so when you have a culture of people who are making decisions based on a value set through the principles that you put in place, slowly more and more leadership backs away because the team itself is making great decisions in your absence. At that point, what happens when you send out your children or people who are, offer, who are operating independently at their discretion on your decisions and making great judgments, you start to trust them more and more, right? They're out there, they're doing it. You're right. proud of what they're doing. When you scale good decisions, people operating on their own agency, you end up with this high trust situation. And if you're going to provide service beyond just yourself, the practical roadmap to get to the place where you can trust the decisions being made in your absence is just the process of building in your values through principles and practicing and promoting those every single day to the point that your people are making great decisions without you. And that's scale. That's how you end up scaling this business. Wow. <laughs> that's huge. Let, I do want to tell, I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned values and principles, and that's a huge thing for you, Steve. And I want to tell a little story to the people. When I first met Steve, it was actually at a bar situation. I think he was grabbing, I don't know what you were grabbing, maybe a musk. I think you said you're particular about what you like. What were oh, you I grabbing? Oh, I don't drink. <laughs> oh, you don't? I was, no, I was doing oh, soda water. <laughs> you're just hanging there. Okay. So I was getting a Moscow mule at the time. Yeah. I thought you had something vodka related. Okay. And, I, and then we were talking and you mentioned how you want to scale into different markets and really just scale this operation. I'm like, dang, how many rentals does this guy have that he's scaling into multiple markets? And I asked you, I said, how many? And you said 4,000. And I thought to myself, why aren't you on stage speaking? That's the first thing that came to my mind. The second thing that came to my mind is, how'd you do it? That's the first question that anybody would ask in that situation. Say, personally, myself, I'm at 20, you're at 4,000. How do I get to your level? How do you get this done? And you stared at me point blank. And you just said one word, values. That's it. That's the one word you said. That, And I said, is there anything else? Is there any secrets? You're like, nope, that's it. That's You said there, there are different components to it, but at the end of the day, Values is a huge part of getting into the next level. So then naturally, I said, I got values. 
And the moment I said that, I think I regretted it because you started saying, what are your values? And I thought I had it all planned out. I said, world-class experience, something about integrity, something. I, I just started naming a few. And you looked at me and you said, those are not values. Those are principles. So it just blew my mind because I thought this whole time, wow, these great values I'm instilling in my, in my company. But it's such a trigger word, right? Something that a lot yeah. of people talk about, but a lot of people don't understand. Steve, let's go into understanding what values actually are and then what principles are in your context. Mm -hmm. So values are the things that we believe are important and we use as a guide to make decisions by, right? So for instance, if you believe in transparency, like transparency is a value. I have a, one of our business values is transparency. We believe that if we have great transparency with our homeowners and guests, that when things go wrong, we've built, it builds, it's a built trust over time. And therefore this is a trust relationship, right? So trustability is bookability. Trustability is, is rentability. So transparency is one of those things that create that. So how do we create transparency? So the rules in which we create transparency is our principles. Principles are operationalized values. So for instance, as we go through and we do our work orders, uh, we have a policy that says, if you don't get a picture of the work done before and after, and if you didn't get notification of it before it started, the work is free. Now, why is it now? And by the way, we've had to give back money because one of the team didn't live the values. And so that brand promise was enacted. And so thousands of dollars were given back because we had to live that value. The value of transparency it, it, there, there's the value of transparency. The principle is providing work order, providing photos with work orders before every single work order is complete. No surprises on your statements. So building these principles, building these decisions to building these rules to make decisions by is the principles that are operationalized values. So over time, as you start going through your values, you start making rules and you putting them, you start putting those together and you start using those as the guideposts for your team to make decision by. We have a credo, which is quite honestly, nothing more than a collection of principles that our team talks about every single day in all 45 cities. As we do that, you can go from city to city. And one of my dear friends, Matt Landau was doing a special on us with his homerunners edition showing the different cities and i kept telling him for years it's different here there's something different i'd give him a, a copy for credo he's like, yeah it's different this is a cute little paper it's different but as he drove around and he went as we went from city to city without me saying anything just letting everybody talk he's like, they're all talking about the same values they all have their own version while they may explain it differently and they may have a different angle on how to apply it the values that are, you are instilling is in all 45 cities. And you can hear it being spoken as a common thread through all these cities, through these hundreds of people who are working for us. And without that, can you imagine what it would be like having people in 45 different cities and nobody really knows what our values are. Nobody really knows what we're doing. Why are we doing this? What's our common purpose? What's our mission? What's the priority? And suddenly you have a you have disaster on your hands because the inconsistency of brand or people putting their, inserting their own values into your business 
They're making decisions on your behalf and your name based on their values, not yours. So wow. this is how we go. This is how we operationalize values is through principles. Wow. So let's talk about establishing values, right? Let's say that you're at a pivotal point where you're ready to go. You're ready to drive this into a scalable organization. And so far you've been involved in every decision, but you want to get this into the business side of things, right? You want to start mm -hmm. operationalizing it. You want to start, you're hiring people under you, that kind of thing that are making decisions for you. So now when you're at that point, that pivotal moment, how do you establish your values? What are the steps to really build that into your team? What What is my value for this company? I would tell you, lock yourself away and get really quiet. And the very first thing you do is write down your values and get very clear on them. You should articulate them. Then start writing down what is your vision for the company? When you write down what your vision for this company is, like what, why did you start this business? How do you want this business to be described? Within those, within that description is what you value for this company. If you say, I've, my vision for this company is to grow it quickly. I don't care about the community. I don't care about the people. I want to drive this business. And in three years, I want to sell it for 10X or 5X or whatever the number is. I'm going to drive this. I'm going to flip it. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of homes in communities that I've never seen. I don't know anything about them. I'm going to buy them in residential neighborhoods in which I've got kids and stuff living there. And I'm going to build it into it. And then I'm going to take that and build it into a bunkhouse where a four bedroom sleeps 15 people. Write it down. Those are your values. Start working back from there. You can start saying now within that, if you build a bunkhouse that sleeps 15 people in a four bedroom in the middle of a residential property, residential neighborhood with a bunch of kids in there, and you know, there's going to be a big party house with, with neighbors who you're going to disrupt. Are you able to say one of my values is care of people and community? No, you can't. Can you say it's about money and ROI? Yes, you can. So these are how you start to build what your true business values are. And you have to be very intentional about what you want this company to be and work backwards into those of what your values are. It will open your eyes as to what will you give up money for? When have you been embarrassed? Have you ever done anything that you've been truly embarrassed of? And start thinking about what principles were broken when I was like embarrassed of my own actions, right? Who's somebody who I look up to and what do they embody? And then what do I want this business to look like? How do I want people to describe this business? And what are my goals for this business? And if you are somebody who doesn't care about the community, who wants to put a bunkhouse in the middle of a residential neighborhood, who will not do background checks on your people to make sure that you're not putting the sex offenders in the middle of three blocks away from a, a schoolhouse, then just say it and be honest about it. And I'm using extreme examples, but I promise you, if that's what, if you're just looking to turn and burn, you will find staff members who will come right along with you that have the exact same values as you do. You will lower your churn on that business by having the integrity of between your values and your business by being honest about what your goals are. So getting clear about what you want within your business is the very first thing that you have to do. And then writing it down, speaking it out loud, telling everybody who you hire, these are our values, holding them to those standards. What will you permit? What are you personally practicing? 
and what are you promoting every day, every single day, and then getting on with it. Those are the ways in which you take your values and drive them into a place where everybody knows exactly what they are, what you expect, and then laying out rules around them, which are just your principles. They're just the opera, their values that are being operationalized. They build, they, they serve as a foundation for a system or a belief or for a behavior and, or for a chain of reasoning. And that's what you have to get down to. When your people can go out there and they're making, they know exactly what to expect because, and they can make decisions on what they can expect, you start to drive a business that has cohesiveness. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if your team is afraid to make decisions, it's because they don't trust you. They can't trust that their leader is a safe leader, that if they make a decision, they know what to expect. They like, this is what is expected of me. This is in my values. This is in our principles. This is an easy decision to make. I'm making this decision. If your team's constantly calling you, if you're the white knight with a thousand minions and nobody's making decisions without you, you've got a trust problem. And it's because you haven't instilled in them what your values are. And you haven't put trust into them to fall off the curb so they don't fall off the cliffs. And they're making decisions out there in fear at the very best and no decision at the very worst. Wow. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, this is like such a critical piece to really growing and scaling your business. And you are honestly... The person that's go-to for this kind of advice for me personally, which you've been super helpful with. Thank you so much. For people that don't know, and maybe you can explain a little bit about it, the university that you created. Can we hear more about that? Yeah, when we got to the, I think when we got to the $50 million mark, it was a struggle to keep, to keep everything together. We were running, we were running operations and being able to speak into everybody's being able to speak into everybody became impossible. And I found that the organization had gone beyond me. We were struggling and uh, I hired somebody to do nothing but training and support for all of our, our team. And that's where we started to build a process in which day one is values and culture, the history of the business, why they should be proud to, why they should be proud of it, to be able to work for this business, why we are proud of the business and how it got started. Day two is all operations, putting in the policies and procedures. And then day three is customer service, kindness, driving it back around to higher level, hard function, hard skills. And then it goes, day four starts to become what specifically you were hired to do. So everybody is trained as a reservationist, even housekeepers. Everybody should be able to make a reservation from the ground up. And I think that goes back to in the military, they say that everybody is an infantryman when the enemy shows up, right? Whether you're a cook or a mechanic, you got to pick up that gun. Everybody's an infantryman. So in our business, everybody should know hospitality. Even the housekeeping, if they understand the entire process, what kind of better decisions can they make when they have context as to how this entire process works? What kind of food, how they know who to call. They know how it works. When they have a guest and that they're talking to, and there's a problem, they understand exactly how the business process works. They know how to get a hold of somebody. They know how to fix those things. So is it online, this whole process or in person? No, we bought a piece of land and built a building. I have eight full-time employees, two different classrooms, 
three huddle rooms and then an entire support center that does nothing but training, logistics, support. If you've got a problem with Streamline, you call us. We get in there, we fix your problems. We help with your accounting. If you're stuck, we have somebody who is six days a week is out there just to do nothing but help you all the time. Plus a couple of partner success managers that are constantly on call to make sure that our people are getting everything they need to build their business and, and grow a great life for themselves. Wow. Yeah. And so for people that don't know, the model that you guys implement is the franchise model. So you guys come in and pretty much get local operators to understand the Casago, everything about what you guys value, all the principles, how things are run, and really pretty much like mentoring like hundreds of local operators, how to best be in the hospitality business, from my understanding. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. So I'd gotten up to 16 cities by myself. It was about 1,800 units that I I was in charge of. It it was difficult to go any further. And so it was either take private equity or sell to private equity. What the final decision was to enable others who are local operators to build a more scalable business for themselves. We found a couple of gentlemen who were really struggling and they were worried about their business. And I said, Hey, I've got this idea. What if we, what if I gave you all these enterprise tools, the software, uh, the revenue management, the training, you get access to Costco university. We'd send you through it. You would make sure that you had support six days a week. We would help you grow your business. We have homeowner acquisition tools. We have marketing tools. What if I could give you all that and make it net neutral? And they said, can you do that? <laughs> and I was like, I think so. And yeah. uh, off we went. And what we found is there's some amazing talent, people who are hungry, people who are ambitious, who want to grow and scale their short-term rental career. And maybe they just don't have the tools or they need some extra training, or maybe they just want support. And so we're finding a lot of people who have a small pool of homes. We come in, we get them on an enterprise software system. We help them with the revenue management. We have call centers in the middle of the night in case they're struggling to have the phone in the middle of the night. We got homeowner acquisition. We got an entire internal homeowner acquisition division to help go out and pick up new, pick up new homes if they manage homes. And the idea is if you want to make this your living, we can come in and help you grow to as big as you want. We have some franchises that are sitting at 350 properties. We have some that are sitting at 10 or 15 because that's where they want to be. Depending on the markets and their lifestyle, we can help take off the pressure. We have some people who buy into the franchise who have been operating 50 or 60 units for years. And they're looking for a succession plan or it's just stressful to them. And they may have been operating, but they didn't have the systems and tools mm-hmm. and processes or principles in place to teach the, to scale themselves. And we're finding people who are maybe making, taking home a million dollars a year, but the stress on them is making them burn out. So how do we make their life either better or how do we make it simpler or how do we help them make more? It's based on everybody's individual goals, but market by market, this doesn't work as a, this industry does not work with a top down approach. 
at the end of the day, the front lines have all the information. They're the ones who are running it. And it has to be a groundswell of people who like truly love their community. They're very specific about who we'll take on. Uh, they have to have the same values as we do. It's not that people who have different values, we don't chastise them, but they don't fit in. We want people who own locally, who love their communities, who will be good neighbors to the people around them, who are going to show up and, and be supportive and grow a and have a reputation of being an attribute to their communities and building up great homeowners and guests that will come back not only to their properties, but they can pass them off to a company like the Casago in Big Bear, or the Casago in, in Santa Barbara or San Diego or Carlsbad or whatever these cities are. And we're finding more and more that it takes local heroes to build that national brand. It doesn't take a national brand to build local heroes, right? So the empowerment of the that. local short-term operator that who is passionate about it, but let's put some tools, systems, processes, and let's get them up to $10, $20 million a year coming through. That's if that's awesome. what they want. Yeah. yeah so that's I, the I idea. Love, I love the Vacasa story you shared. <laughs> I don't know if you want to share live, but I'd rather not. I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to badmouth a competitor on, on, on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> no worries. I, we'll skip I, that one. I, I would tell you this, that the people who started, the people who are trying to save Vacasa right now are not the people who started Vacasa. And you've got a situation over there that there's some really good people trying to figure it out. They didn't get, they didn't start it but they're trying to fix it. I don't know what happens over there. It's not good for any of us if Vacasa fails from a point of view that Vacasa showed that we were in, that this was an investable market or an industry. It showed that you could raise money and go to IPO. And if they fail, it's going to make it much harder for other money to come in. And the rest, and it's going to make it much harder for the rest of the industry just to convince private equity to start doing rounds to help build up another public company. And that's so, why Casago is alive and wow and, and yeah. doing their thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I, we, yeah. Yeah. We come at it from a very different angle. Yeah. It's from, it's straight up a, a it's straight up a groundswell play and it's working. And yeah. yeah, we'll be at 75 cities by the end of the year. In 2025, we'll be over 100 cities. Are you thinking um, about IPO or no? We'll never What's the ever, future look like for you guys? We'll never ever IPO. We will never take a majority buyout of this business. We don't want private equity being in control of this. It's a generational business in which we build up something that's valuable and share it among the people. We don't want this, this to turn into something where you have people who have signed these franchise contracts and suddenly have a private equity firm who's more about the money than the people. We'd much rather drive lower margins in a sustainable business over the course of decades than try to get the quick flip and, and high multiples and sell the soul of the business. My partner, Ryan Dame, and I are on the same page with this. It is about building an organization that lasts beyond us and is never held by majority by anybody who is not privately, is not a private citizen. Wow. Yeah, that's huge, man. What do you think's up with the, with the short-term rental industry? Where is it headed in your take? I think the short-term rental industry is in the midst of a battle. 
for its own soul. And it's not, people want to compare, is it the, is it the property managers or the STR investors that are bad, or is it the IPOs are bad, or is it the private equity that's bad? That's not the battle for the soul. The battle for the soul started 15 years ago, and it comes down to when Airbnb came into place, the barrier to entry was dropped dramatically. Before that, you'd have to build a website. You'd have, you didn't have self-locking door. You didn't have electronic blocks. You'd have to go and make sure you turn out, you hand out keys and get them back and you'd have people check in. And there's, there was quite, there was a lot of infrastructure that it took to run a short-term rental. When VRBO came online, anybody could put it online. There was no checks. There was no, you, they didn't even know if you were real or not. You could use their credit card processing. You didn't even have to have a, your own credit card processing or go find a merchant account. The, it, you could go out and do this on an amateur level. And what started from there is a pronounced divide between good actors and bad actors. And when I say good actors and bad actors, I don't mean the difference between a property manager and a short-term rental operator or a rent by owner or anything like that. There are good actors and bad actors in every category of this, all the way from self-renting owners to short-term rental investors, to property managers, to co-hosts, to, to private equity and beyond. And what's happened is you have people like we talk about, like that are going into cities that they don't love and communities that they don't care about. And they leverage themselves or leverage up financially and they have to turn that grinder in order to make the payments. And so what do they do? They put in high occupancy, they load up a whole bunch of bunk beds and it's in places that, that traditionally would have accepted a short-term rental if operated responsibly. But now regulation comes down because bad actors who are not doing the screening, who are running these high occupancy units with over with, with too many people at a time, it's destroying, it's giving a black eye to our industry. And there's places for those types of vacation rentals. There's communities that are almost all exclusively vacation rentals in which they don't care. Load them up. This is a tourist community. But instead, this is happening. And I think that if we don't start self-regulating, we're going to be regulated by somebody else. And it's never good when somebody else has to come in and discipline you. It's always better to self-discipline. But as of right now, the oversaturation and the bad actors, which are quite honestly the minority, but they're so pronounced, is causing a lot of pain and actually giving us a black eye. As in, there was a long time I was very proud to be a short-term rental operator and a short-term rental investor and a short-term rental management company. And I'm an, you know, an advocate for it. And just recently, I was at a I was at a meeting and somebody said, "What do you do?" I was like, "I'm I manage short term rentals." And they said, "Oh, you're one of those." And wow. they immediately went into how damaging we are to housing the community, crisis. Yeah, housing crisis. And I and, get that all the time on my videos. All the time. I think the biggest things that people talk about is one, they make fun of me for something, maybe my voice, personally, and then sometimes people. And then the other end, they'll talk about the housing crisis, like you're ruining housing, like all this kind of stuff. It's really a lot of negative connotations there. And there's a lot of negative news revolving short-term rentals. 
do you think that's going to change anytime soon? Or do you think it's going to weed out the people are going to realize, oh, whatever, this is, I don't want to be, I don't want to, it's not as a quick cash grab as I thought it was. They're going to leave and the people with the real principles and values are going to stay and that's going to change this industry for forever. Or do you think that it's just going to tumble? I, I would tell you that if you're supposed to only have one black swan event in your entire life, our generation is seeing one about every six years. With the Black Swan event of COVID-19, there was some demand. It drove a lot of people into this industry because it was get rich quick for a time. With every up cycle, there's no such thing as an up cycle without a down cycle. I think the down cycle will cull a lot of the people who are who, who came in during the good times because it was easy. I don't think you can rely on that to change the culture of an entire industry. This industry has to get an association together that is a association of responsible actors who will hold others accountable in their communities and industry who advocate for the short-term rental industry as a whole, but also advocate for good regulation for short-term rentals. Anybody who tells you that a short-term rental should have no regulation, that it's a red flag because look, Having good regulation is the only way that this thing sustains itself for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. And we have to get to a place where if we're the ones who are advocating as the actors for good regulation, then we're not going to get somebody who's going to do the knee-jerk reaction of the bad regulation. And when you start getting things like in San Diego, where they're just going to shut everybody off at one time, or then it was like only if you live there, they've gone through all these iterations of it. Why is that? It's because the short-term rental industry as a whole didn't come in and put regulation on this 10 years ago when they should have. You know, there's an organization called the BRMA, Vacation Rental Management Association. They have squandered decades of being the leader of the industry and trying to put and not putting regulation and advocacy in place. The lack of leadership, a lot of nepotism over there, they've completely squandered the ability to have a fan to, to get ahead of this. So now it's on us. And so, so I would tell you, wasn't one of your employees, sorry to interrupt, but wasn't one of your employees, like an ex member of VRMA or not VRMA, the vacation rental, whatever that organization is called. VRMA. Yeah. It is the, uh, VRMA. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. VRMA. Yeah. We're all members of it because mm. we are, do we belong to the association? Absolutely. Do we think that they have done a good job? No. Does are they very old school? Do they need a? Do they need to step up? Um, they need a Steve. Somebody... No, they don't need a Steve. They need a... <laughs> Steve's got his own gig. <laughs> they... Somebody else got to take it. Um... Yeah. No. That's no. They they need somebody else who is young, who can come in with the ideas and the fire in the belly and start and build it into a more. I'm not even sure that it's that the VRMA is the right vehicle anymore. I think it used to be. I think that the industry has changed to the point where they're not very relevant right now. And we do have a a staff member who is on the board, but she's on the board now in spite of the board because the VRMA actually has a rule where the board will recommend the next board and you can vote for the board that's recommended or somebody can come in and try to fight against the board's recommendations. I how often does it happen that you know the board you basically click one box for what the board says or you have to go through and do everything? 
And I always tell her it took a woman to break through the good old boys club. There was a good old boys club who mm-hmm. was, who was, oh, we like this person. We will skip this person will say yes. They interviewed me one time and they said, what will you do if you don't agree with us? So I'm going to tell you my opinion and <laughs> never, never heard from him again, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but she broke through. She's one, she's the only person I know of I, that I personally know of. It actually fought against the machine and won. And she had uh, wow. the horsepower to do it. And I'm very proud of her. So wow. She's an amazing woman. I, she, I'm always pushing on the team hard to make sure we hit our goals and do things like that and stuff. But And all the team. But the, uh, the, the team we have at Casio is amazing. And I respect the heck out of them. And I respect the heck out of her. She did a fantastic mm-hmm. job with that. And she's a brilliant human being that kicked butt and actually upset the apple cart at a, an entire social, industry association. I'm not surprised though, Steve, because the thing is you have the drive of values down to your whole organization. And I know you as a person, and I can only imagine you have a thousand other little Steve's out there for the same principles that you've instilled in them. And so I'm assuming that they uphold to that standard of values and pretty much decision-making principles, that kind of thing. I I haven't even met any of them and I can already assume what kind of human beings they are. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I would tell you that I, there's not a thousand Steve's out there. There's all these amazing people that are aligned with me. That we're, we go. all have an alignment like together. That. But quite honestly, this would be this company would be a mess if there's a thousand Steve's because there's all these strengths and weaknesses we all have, right? And yeah, so building right. a team that's interdependent upon each other is the only way. And celebrating all of that individualism is a big part of how you drive this forward. I always, our company is has a inordinate amount of, of women running the organization. And people ask me like, if I did that on purpose, I said, no, it's a meritocracy. I gave anybody the opportunity and that's who showed up and did the best job and all things being good. Oh no, I just had a thought on that. That's really interesting to bring that up. That could be a whole nother conversation, but I think Women in the short-term rental space, when I go to short-term rental conferences versus going to other kinds of conferences, women dominate in short-term rental conferences. And my intuition is telling me versus like multifamily, for instance, right? Where I think short-term rentals have a lot of things like qualities for design, being really hospitable, right? That comes very naturally to a lot of women and a lot of women stepping up into those leadership roles and just dominating this industry. I don't know what you think about that, but that those, the femininity is needed in this industry. And it's, from what I've seen, it's been instrumental. I would say this, that there are a lot of women in our industry, but they're not being heard and they're not being put into leadership the way at the proper, I don't know why either. I have theories, but nothing that I could say I could point to, but Whatever it is, as an industry, we need to lift up the women in our industry and make sure they get a fair shot at having a voice and input. If you look on stage. Can I do a quick shout out then? Because I think this is a great time to do this. I want to shout out Natalie Palmer and Tatiana. They both put on the Level Up Your Listing, which is an all-female conference in the short-term rental space. And it allows women to be heard and actually speak without the interference of men being in the room. And I think 
that is just so powerful. And I just got to condone them on what they're doing. It's been amazing. Yeah. I just wanted to chime that in, but you were saying, yeah, I know that actually my, I know that, I know that conference actually, we sent one of our staff, sent our staff to it. Yeah. But to that point, not only having their own space, but they also need to be included in the big tent and they, and their voices need to be heard on stage. They need to be, there needs to be a diversity of voices, not only women, but to include women that are raised up in, in equity and diversity of thought and ideals to make sure that this doesn't turn into a bunch of boys club, uh, another boys club. Yeah. Yeah. So many other industries. I couldn't yeah. agree more, man. That's what I'm excited about, but let's wrap it up here, man. Okay. This is an, an awesome, wow. Like you've absolutely crushed it. You've shared so much knowledge, probably by the way, for the people listening, that's like thousands and thousands of dollars of knowledge, probably even more business coaches will charge you so much for that knowledge. And Steve's giving away for free. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate you, man. My pleasure. <laughs> Just such a giving person. So I, I wanted to close out here and ask you one thoughtful question I always ask to every person. And I think of it on the spot all the time, a scenario question usually. And then also wanted to, we talked about the future, but I also wanted to ask you what book do you recommend for people? It doesn't have to be real estate related. Okay. So you answered the book question first or book a, thought, yeah. book, a book question? Let's see. Actually, I just, I've been reading a book called Principles. My Principles actually is by Ray Dalio. If you've ever read the book Principles, great book, but My Principles is almost like a workbook of it. And it asks you some pretty great questions for clarity as you go through it. Some of it's a little bit long, but that's a, a fantastic book. Never Eat Alone. As far as mm -hmm. a business book goes, love never eat alone. If you've ever read the um, the Talent Code, Talent mm -hmm. Code is a fantastic book. Not only is it applicable to business, but the neuroscience that they go into is makes you understand what's happening in the brain and operates at a pretty good level. A Zero to Five Hundred Properties by Brooke Fouts is a great book. is very relevant to this. He's the he's the CEO and president of Ventori. He's not only He's not only an STR investor, he's, an ST, he's been an STR manager, he's been an STR marketer, and he actually created an entire category within itself inside of our industry and has taken that to the next level. He's done a fantastic job of that. Organizational behavior essentials is a good one. Making big happen, trusted leader, those are all pretty good books. Wow. <laughs> if the best, gonna... the personal MBA by Josh Kaufman. I'll tell you, if you want to give yourself a present, the best thing I ever did for myself this year, the only best present I bought myself was a subscription to HBR.org. They put out, the Harvard Business Review puts out amazing articles, quick reads, and golden nuggets that kind of change your life. Is that daily or weekly or how often do they send out? Oh, they've got a, there's a repository of thousands and thousands of uh, articles that are written, that are curated, well done. They do send out newsletters consistently. It'll end up in your feed at LinkedIn and you can, uh, if you, if you don't want to pay for it, go to LinkedIn and subscribe to them. You'll get them in your feed. You won't be able to always, to you only get a few to read a month, but pick the ones that you think are most relevant to you. That's awesome. Yeah. So Steve, you're not that old school where you have a newspaper in front of you and get it all no. shipped. No, no. <laughs> you do it's all LinkedIn. Do they still have newspapers? I, never, I don't I never even know. Newspaper. I've never read a newspaper in my life. That kind of shows how young I am. 
Really? You've <laughs> yeah. never read newspaper your whole life? No, huh? never. Like those classic ones, like maybe newsletters, but um, that's usually online. Yeah. yeah. My, I, my dad, <laughs> I remember my dad having them, but I've, I mean, I, and, and maybe getting the comics on the Sunday paper, but never as a child, but now it's a uh, day's gone by. That's crazy. Yeah. So here's your scenario, Steve. I wanted to give you this before we wrap up. Let's say that Casago is being run by a money hungry lunatic and the values, you're not in this picture. Imagine mm-hmm. Casago, you're not, you didn't start it. You didn't start. It. Okay. Yeah. You're doing your own thing. And, and it's run by this crazy lunatic, right? And mm-hmm. he's valuing money. He's doing all this stuff. He, he hasn't really pushed values down to the team members it's just a total mess like the mm-hmm. fact that it's steve still even like up and running and it ipo'd or uh, they're trying to ipo and all this but then they decide mm-hmm. you know what we're gonna bring steve in and we're gonna see him turn this whole business around what are you doing spending three days in an off-site with leadership to decide who stays and who goes and then those who stay start to build personal and business values clarity with them this is like elon musk you're just coming in (laughs) i would anybody who is caustic is gone anybody who has the this values of driving this business forward stays building personal values common values business values and then principles on top of it and then taking those and then putting a plan together to drive those into the industry is day one on the second week i'd come in with my cfo and go through every single line item piece by piece to understand the business and then and then the long road ahead of the turnaround. Wow. How long do you think it would take to turn around? Who does it's fictional. It's fictional, I wouldn't yeah. know, but <laughs> I would I would tell you that it takes years to build a great culture and it takes mm-hmm. weeks to destroy it. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that. And for people that want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, just email me, steve at costigo.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn, which is a great way to get a hold of me, which is just linkedin.com forward slash steve.schwab, or you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Schwab as well. Cool. Any exciting things? Are you still accepting people into Casago and to be operators that you want to scale up? If somebody's a good cultural fit, if they believe in taking care of communities, if they believe in taking care of their guests, if they want to grow into a business in which they can make a great living at, if they're true short-term rental nerds, they love talking about it, they love getting into it, and they want to be part of a movement of like-minded people, we are accepting people. We'd love to talk to anybody who's interested. It's, uh, just reach out to me. Check out costigo.com forward slash franchise. Cool, man. Dude, thank you so much, Steve. Appreciate you so much. You're Thanks. the best. Thanks, Patrick. You too, buddy. <laughs> Bye. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Patrick Real Estate Show. If you found this episode helpful, please give us a follow and leave us a five-star review. Your support truly means a lot. And connect with Patrick in the show notes below. Until next time.